Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. For those that have been willing to give their lives over the last couple of centuries for our nation, for those families that have lost, Lord, for those families whose loved ones are serving now, Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness. And Father, I pray for our country, Lord. I pray for the leaders of our country. I pray, Father, they would make godly choices. I pray they would understand your calling upon their lives, that you've placed them where they are. Father, I pray you would just work in their hearts on the local and the state and the federal level, Father, to accomplish your will. And I pray, Father, as a nation, that we would come to a place of repentance, Father, for the sins of our personal lives, for our sins as a country. I pray, Father, that you would forgive us of the mistakes that we've made. And I I pray, Father, that that revival would break out in the hearts of our people. There would be a turn towards you, Father, in our country and our land. And I pray that you would do amazing things, Father. I pray as we study your word this morning, I pray you'd be honored, glorified. Help us to see truth, to understand truth, Father. I pray through the power of the Spirit we'd be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let me remind you very quickly, if I have not already, next week is a little bit different with VBS. We'll have, you probably already know this, but just in case you don't, we'll have one big Sunday school in here at 9.30. The reason we do that is all of the adult Sunday schools are used for VBS. So if you show up at your Sunday school at 9.30 next week, they're going to put you to work. Okay, so just be aware of that. So you probably want to come in here. You guys are in here anyway at 9.30, but there will be one Sunday school in here at 9.30, one worship service at 11 because so many of our adults are serving. If you want to serve, there's still a place for you. We'd love to have you. VBS begins next week. Now, take your Bibles, open to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. We continue our study this week of the book of Genesis. We took a week off last week and recognized our graduates. And let me just say again, congratulations to all those that have graduated Congratulations to the families that put forth all the effort. We're very proud of you. We look forward to to watching the graduates over the next many years and see what the Lord does through them. So we're back in our study of Genesis this week. Genesis chapter 7. As we continue in this sermon series entitled In the Beginning, it's a picture and a study through verse by verse the story and the account of creation. And now we've moved in the book of Genesis to the story of the flood. And so I just want to recount very quickly, if I can, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going to go. God has, in our study so far, created in Genesis 1 and 2 everything perfect. It's a beautiful picture of what he's done for us, of how he's prepared the earth for us. Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. Everything changes. And there's this interesting thing that I honestly, until I studied through it as much as I have, I wasn't quite as aware of it as I am now. But really beginning in Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the flood, it's this picture of a slow, steady descent away from the things of the Lord. It's increased sinfulness in our planet. And what we see is the Lord looks down upon this and he sees these people that are sinful, that have evil in their hearts, and he decides in his mind that he's going to destroy the world. Now, I just want to kind of warn you before we jump into this this morning, we're going to cover a lot of stuff. And there are a couple of things I want you to see this morning, kind of big pictures we walk through this. I want you to, first of all, understand the account of the flood. But more importantly than just understanding the account of the flood, I want you to have confidence that this is absolutely true. Let me say that again, okay? 
I want you to have confidence that the account of the flood is absolutely true. There are far too many people in our world that have questioned the authority of Scripture really from the beginning and the end. But one of the places they kind of highlight and hone in oftentimes is the flood story. Can we really believe they would say that this man built a boat that the earth flooded and he saved the animals? Well, this is what Scripture teaches. And so I want you to understand as we study through this, we're going to ask some questions this morning that I believe are fairly common questions that a lot of people are asking. We're going to try to answer them biblically. We're going to give you a foundation to stand on and a better understanding that this is in fact accurate and true. And here's where this leads. Here's kind of the application for you this morning. The application is that God is all-powerful and separation from Him will lead to judgment, period. That's really what the flood's about. The animals are cool and the boat's neat and we like to think through all that kind of stuff and that's all part of it. But the big picture story foundationally here is that sin has separated from the Lord and unless something is done, that sin will destroy us. Now the picture of Noah and the ark is a beautiful picture of God's plan of salvation and it really points ahead to the idea of Christ. Because if we think about the idea of Christ, we live in a world that's sinful and will be destroyed and is separated from the things of the Lord. But God provided for us salvation through Jesus Christ. So even though we're a few centuries away, many centuries away in the flood from the story of Christ, it's a picture of God's plan of redemption for His people. So we're going to jump right in this morning. We're going to cover a lot of material. I'm going to answer a lot of questions, and hopefully you're going to understand better the account of the flood. Beginning in Genesis chapter 7, we're going to look at the first ten verses, nine, I think the first nine verses to begin with, and we're going to stop and think through them. Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. So the Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I found you righteous in this generation. Again, a picture of the righteousness of Noah and his obedience. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth. Now, so Noah and his family are going to be in the boat for seven, year, seven days before it rains. I'm going to send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Again, this is a picture now of universal flood. This isn't a regional flood. God's going to wipe from the face of the earth every living creature he has made. This is universal. This is total. And Noah did all the Lord God had commanded him in verse 5. Now 6. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came to the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah, entered the ark as God had commanded them. And then verse 10, and after seven days the floodwaters came on the earth. Now let's stop there for a minute and let's kind of paint a picture of what's going to happen. We've led up to this point of sin. We've seen this separation. We've seen the righteousness of Noah. We've seen that the Lord has called Noah. Noah has been obedient. We're to this point now. This is point number one of this story. Number one, God now calls Noah and the animals to enter the ark. So the time for planning is done. The time for preparation is done. God has looked and made a decision. He's called Noah and the animals and they've entered the ark. 
Now here's the point at which a lot of people begin to question this account. So I'm going to ask this question and I want to answer it. People look at this account of the flood. They look at this account of Noah. They look at this account of the animals and they ask this question. Is it really possible for all of these animals to fit on the ark? Is it really possible for all the animals in the world to fit on this one boat? Well, let's be clear as we kind of think through this. If you're asking the question, is it possible for all the animals on the world to fit onto this boat? The question is absolutely no. It's not possible for all the animals of the earth to fit on the boat. But as we study through this and better understand this, God doesn't call every animal on the planet to enter the boat. In fact, he narrows the scope quite a bit in these few verses and it'll help us better understand what it's really like on the ark. Look with me again at verses 2 and 3. God's not saying I'm going to call every animal from the planet to enter the ark. God's going to say instead, I'm going to give some qualifiers here. Listen to what he says. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal. A male and its mate. Now let's just pause there just for a second. So God's going to narrow down, right? We want seven pair of clean animals. You say, why would they take clean animals? Well, let's remember. Now we're in the early part of the Old Testament here, but as we move through the Old Testament, we're going to see that sacrifice had to be made for the atonement of sins. We see that all through the Old Testament. And when sacrifice was made, it had to be a clean animal. An animal that was without spot, that was without stain, that was without blemish. And so all through the Old Testament, we see that these people would take clean animals and they would sacrifice these animals for the remission of their sins. Now this is a picture, as we kind of think ahead a little bit, of what Christ is going to be. Now God doesn't say this to Noah. My opinion is Noah had no idea exactly what this meant. He just wanted to obey the Lord. But if we kind of take a 30,000 foot view of this, we see there's this picture here of this clean animal being sacrificed for our sins. It's a picture of who Jesus is going to one day be. And so God says to Noah, bring seven pairs of clean animals, a male and its mate. And as we continue in verse 2, one pair of every animal that was unclean, a male and its mate. Seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. So what we see then is the Lord has really narrowed the scope of this. Seven pair of clean animals, one pair of unclean animals, a male and its mate. So we've already greatly reduced the number of animals. But now the Lord's going to do something else that I think is very interesting. And I think it's something we miss a lot of times as we study this account. Look at, again, verses 2 and 3. And I want you to notice the word kind. K-I-N-D. God uses the word kind in verses 2 and 3. And I want to read it again. I want you to notice the word kind and its usage. And we're going to think about that just for a few minutes. Take with you seven pairs of every kind. There's that word of clean animal. A male and its mate. And one of every kind of clean animal. Unclean animal, a male and its mate. Verse 3. And also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Now God uses this word four times in two verses. And if we're not careful, we just kind of skim right over these words and we don't think a lot about them. And I want to remind you of something. This is going to help us better understand what the Lord's doing here. I want to remind you of what God says in Genesis chapter 1. Now you don't have to flip back with me. But I want to reread for you Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. I want you to listen to the words that he uses here. Just going to tie this together, and then we're going to talk about it. Genesis 1, 21. So God created the great creatures of the sea 
in every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds. There's that word. Every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now verse 24 of Genesis 1. And God said, let the land produce creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. So God made the wild animals according to their kinds. We're seeing this word now over and over. The livestock according to their kinds. And all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So God uses this word kind, K-I-N-D, throughout the Genesis account of creation in chapter 1. He uses it several times now in chapter 7. We're going to see it again in chapter 8. And so we need to kind of back up and ask the question, what does the word kind mean? God uses it in Genesis 1. He uses it with the flood account. We need to understand the word kind because it's going to help us better understand what happened on the boat with all these animals. Now I thought instead of explaining the word just with a definition, it may be better to use an example. And I want to use an example that's going to be easy for us to understand. I'm going to ask a question. I want to see a show of hands. How many of you own a dog? Just raise your hand. Almost everybody. That's great. Almost everybody owns a dog. Now, it's funny because we don't own a dog, but that's okay. Dogs are great. I'm not, a, I'm not an animal person, so dogs are wonderful. We don't have any. That's okay. I like dogs. So we're going to move past that. Dogs, if you understand, come in a lot of different breeds, right? In fact, if I were to say to you, what kind of dog do you have? Some of you would say something like this. Well, we have a mutt, right? He's just kind of a, he's a combination. We don't even really know what all he is. Some of you say, well, no, we, we've got a purebred German Shepherd. We've got a specific kind of a breed of dog. I went and did some research, and I wasn't even aware of this. You may know this. There's a World Canine Organization. Did you know that? I didn't know that that existed. The World Canine Organization recognizes 340 breeds of dogs. Did you know that? There are 340 distinct breeds of dog. Now, I started reading through the names. Some of them I'd never heard of. Some of them are very unfamiliar to me. Some of them were familiar. Breeds like Labrador Retriever, German Shepherd, Boxers, Golden Retriever. There's a, there's a list of dogs that we know and understand. Now, here's what we would say about these dogs. Again, we're thinking about the word kind. There are many different breeds of dogs, right? But they're all dogs. Right? We wouldn't say that a German Shepherd is a bird. We wouldn't say that a golden retriever is a cat, right? We laugh because we know they're, they're dogs. I had an interesting conversation. I, I had the chance to go to Kansas City this last week and see a couple of baseball games, and I was sitting in the airport. We were leaving and struck up a conversation with a lady, and for some reason she knew I was from the South. I don't know how she knew that. <laughs> Maybe my haircut or the, the shirt I was wearing. She was like, you're from the South. How, how did you know? And So we started talking, and she said, isn't We started talking about Georgia. She said, isn't that the one that has the mascot? It's the bulldog. That's what she said. And I was like, well, it's not a bulldog. It's a bulldog. I had to explain to her how to say it. And we had this kind of funny interaction of her trying to say it the right way. And so the way she wanted to say it. We understand there are breeds of dogs, right? But they're all just dogs. Now think with me just for a second, if you would. When God created everything in Genesis 1, he didn't create all these different breeds of animals. He didn't create all these breeds of dogs. In fact, if you were kind of studying, secular scientists would even say this. They can trace all breeds of dog back to one common ancestor. Did you know that? Have you ever read that? Probably some sort of a wolf-like creature. They're not exactly sure what it was. 
And so they can, they can trace all these hundreds of breeds of dogs back to this one animal. And from that animal, all these breeds have come. Now here's what I believe this word kind means. I believe that God, just using the dog analogy, God created a dog, one kind of dog. And within the DNA of that animal, of the male and the female, was enough to create all the different breeds that we have. So when Noah had these animals come to the ark, he didn't have 340 different breeds of dogs. He had one kind of dog, the word that Scripture uses, to come onto the ark that could repopulate the planet. Now, now, now think with me just for a few minutes about other types of animals. If we can trace the lineage of other animals like cattle and buffalo and bison back to one ancestor. If we can trace the horse and the zebra and the donkey back to one ancestor, the sheep and the goat and the, and the mountain goat, you can begin to see that the number of animals necessary is greatly reduced. See, God didn't need all the different breeds and all the different types of animals. He needed the certain kinds of animals that the Lord had created. He needed these common ancestors. And when these came to the boat, they were the animals that were necessary to recreate on the earth after the flood had destroyed now, some of you are probably thinking, now, wait a minute. How did Noah find these animals? How did he know exactly what to bring? You're saying that he's not bringing all these different breeds. He's bringing one kind that could repopulate the earth. Well, Noah didn't have to worry about that. Because the Bible tells us in verse 9 that all the animals came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded. So, in other words, God puts the call out to these animals. These animals, from wherever they lived, across the globe, whatever that looks like, begin to migrate towards the ark. And when the time was right, when God was ready for them to be there, they literally came, walked up the ramp into the ark, and the Bible says that the door was shut by the Lord. I think it's a beautiful picture of God's provision. I think it's a beautiful picture of His power over the world and over the animals. And it helps us better understand when we understand that there were kinds of animals and in pairs of animals. We're not talking about all the animals. We're talking about a small, small, small percentage of the animals that would have the ability then to reproduce when they came off the ark. Now, I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I want to reiterate this. I believe that when God called these animals to the ark, He probably called younger animals I think he did that for a couple of reasons. Number one, those younger animals would probably be more healthy, would probably have a much longer life to live, to repopulate the planet. But the other thing that's interesting about younger animals is they're a lot smaller. Compare the size of a full-grown elephant to a baby elephant. Compare the size of a full-grown giraffe to a baby giraffe. And so if God would bring these younger kinds of animals to the ark... You start thinking about the size of that boat, 400 to 500 feet long and the height and the width. There's actually, biblical scholars have kind of done the math, plenty of room for these animals on this ark. So God provided a way, he provided an avenue for these animals to live with Noah and his family. Now I want to answer one other question. I don't have time to get into it a lot, but I want to answer it because I don't want to move past it without thinking through it just a little bit. And I'll tell you, as I've said from the beginning, I'm always open if you want to come and discuss it more. I think there's a lot to be said about this. But I've had this question two or three times in the last couple of weeks. What about dinosaurs in the ark? People say, what happens about, where are the dinosaurs and what takes place? And they say, all the pictures that I see of Noah in the ark, there are no dinosaurs on the ark. Well, let me just clue you in in case you didn't know. There were no cameras back then. And, and if there had been, they would have been destroyed in the flood. So it's just kind of an artist's rendition, maybe his opinion of what happened. So let's just think through this very simply. I want to answer this question. There's very two quick things. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm open to discussing them more. I just can't do it now. Truth number one, dinosaurs would have been created week one with all the other animals. That's what the Bible says. Very clearly. 
You say, well, that's not what I was taught. And I'm, not saying, I'm not saying what you were taught. I'm saying what the Bible says. Now, I think there's a lot of proof we can make to illustrate that this is the case. I'm not going to do it now. But if dinosaurs were created in week one with all the other land animals, which is exactly what Scripture teaches, there would have been dinosaurs on the ark. Mind blown, right? Whoa, really? Wait, how's that possible? Well, same thing we said with, the, with, the, with all the other animals. There are kinds of dinosaurs. Younger dinosaurs have been real small. Did you know reptiles continue to grow? Did you know that? They get bigger and bigger the longer they live. Did you know that? So dinosaurs that would have lived a long time would have been a lot bigger. Younger dinosaurs probably would have been a lot smaller. So I believe dinosaurs were on the ark with all the other animals. You say, wait a minute, Adam. I've been taught all my life that dinosaurs were here before people. Dinosaurs died off and then people will... First of all, that's not what the Bible teaches. Let's just be very clear about that. But secondly, this will just kind of just interest you a little bit if you want to go do some more research. You should research all the locations all around the world where dinosaurs have been drawn in caves. Have you ever seen some of those illustrations? There are all sorts of examples really all over the world of dinosaurs that have been drawn in caves. And so the question comes, if people weren't around when dinosaurs were, who drew the picture of the dinosaurs? <laughs> I think it's a fair question to ask. And I think it flies in the face of a lot of things we've been taught, but I think it's biblical. Now I'm going to talk in a couple of weeks a lot about fossils and the age of the earth, and I'll get to some more of these questions. But just big picture, I think dinosaurs existed at the time of Noah. I think dinosaurs were on the ark with all the other animals. Now, let's continue to move. Genesis chapter 7, verse 10. We've got to move forward. Genesis chapter 7, verse 10. So we've called all the animals. Noah and his family has entered the ark. We begin now in verse 10 where the Bible says, And after the seven days, so Noah and his family are in the boat. God shut it up. After seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. And the floodgates of heaven were opened, and the rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind. There's that word again. All livestock according to their kind. Every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind. Every bird according to its kind with everything that had wings. Pairs of all the creatures that had breath in life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. And the animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in, right? So we've kind of moved beyond bringing the animals. We've moved beyond Noah coming into the boat. Everything is set. The Bible says God puts him in the ark. He shuts the door. Now here's truth number two. God sends rain and causes the springs of the deep to open up. God sends rain. And causes the springs of the deep to open up. Now if you have your Bibles, I want you to back up just for a minute to Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have them, I'm going to read it out loud. But I think it's interesting to look at. I want you to see it with your own eyes here. Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. There's a very interesting passage of Scripture here that I want to point out and think through just for a minute. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. And no plant had yet sprung up. Now again, we've backed up here to creation, so I don't want to confuse you. We're back here in Genesis 2. For the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So there was this point in creation where God had not yet sent rain, 
The Bible says that the springs of the deep, and we're going to talk about those here in just a few minutes and shed some light on that. But the springs of the deep and the springs kind of bubbled up, says came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now people debate what that exactly means, how that worked. But there's this sense that there was a time in creation where it had not yet rained. God is sending water from the ground to water the plants, which if there's no rain cycle yet, the atmosphere would have been totally different. Now there's some debate here, scholars debate. The question is, did God not send rain now for the remainder of this story all the way up until the time of Noah? Or did rain at some point begin? I kind of lend myself and and believe as I kind of study through this that probably no rain had yet fallen. And so what we see now, this kind of adds a level of interest to this story. Here's Noah now who's building this enormous boat in the middle of nowhere. He's not by the ocean. He has not gotten close to an ocean. He's not going to pick it up and move it. And there's no rain that has yet fallen on the earth. And you can imagine kind of the, the confusion of the people. And probably the disdain and the ways in which they made fun of him. But the Bible says at a certain time, after God had brought everything into the boat, he shut the door up. The Bible says it begins to rain, I think for the first time. And then at that point, the Bible says it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights and it's going to flood the earth. So here's a question people ask again. We're kind of thinking through these questions. People say something like this. Adam, do you, do you really think it's possible to rain enough over the course of 40 days to flood the whole earth? I mean, are you... Because again, we've made, it, we've made the case, I believe biblically, this is a universal flood. We're not talking about just a localized flood. We're not talking about just a a few lakes here that have flooded. We're talking about global, worldwide, universal flood. Is it possible that in 40 days, the Lord could send enough rain to flood the whole earth? Well, I want to remind you of something. It's not just the rain that floods the earth. Look again at verse 11. In the 600 year of Noah's life... On the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of heaven were opened and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So it's not just rain, it's this idea of the great deep, the springs of the great deep bursting forth and flooding the earth with water. Now, I had the opportunity when I was in high school to drive out to Yellowstone National Park with my family. How many have been to Yellowstone, just out of curiosity? Several of you have been to Yellowstone? One of the, the landmarks, most famous areas of Yellowstone National Park is Old Faithful. Now, if you've been to Yellowstone, you've probably seen Old Faithful. Old Faithful is a geyser, which very simply means there's this kind of hole in the rock And every now and then the water just kind of shoots up out. The neat thing about Old Faithful, and the reason they call it Old Faithful, is that it faithfully erupts. In fact, I don't know, they've been there for 100 years, discovered it 100 years ago, whatever the number is. It's faithfully erupted every day for 100 years. In fact, it's so faithful that they literally have, when I was there, they had these these bleachers, this seating area. And we would come and sit, and they, they had this clock, you know, 20 minutes till the next eruption. And you sit there and 20 minutes later, Old Faithful erupts. And if you've ever seen Old Faithful, it's not just like a little bit of water. It's this massive amount of water that just comes, just blasting off into the air. And showers people around it, right? And there's mist. And it's a a very neat experience. And so we ask ourselves the question, okay, is it possible that maybe geysers like this, like Old Faithful and other places around the world, is it possible that things like that were able to kind of erupt and all this water would come from the ground? Is there enough water down there to flood the earth? Well, there's been confusion about that. And that's an area that people have kind of questioned for a number of years. And I 
as I was studying through this sermon series a couple of months ago, came across a very interesting article. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. I don't know if you remember or not, but I want to mention it again this morning. I think it's pertinent to what we're looking at now in Genesis chapter 7. Here's the title of the article. Huge underground reservoir holds, now listen to this, ready? Three times as much water as the earth's oceans. Let me read that again. Huge underground reservoir holds three times as much water as the earth's oceans. Now these scientists were doing some research, right? And they discovered some rocks and they discovered there was water in the rocks. They started digging a little bit more and doing research and looking at seismic activity. And they believe, now we can't get down this far, so this is kind of speculation. They've got scientific evidence, they believe proves this, that about 400 miles below the surface of the earth, now that's a long way down, it's a long way overland, but down is especially difficult because you've got to get through sheer rock to get to it. We've never dug more than about five miles, by the way. But at about 400 miles, they believe there's this layer of water. And I want to read for you from this article. Now, this is a secular group. This is not a Christian group. They didn't set out and try to prove the flood was correct. They were doing other experiments and other research. But here's what they said. This layer, 400 miles below the surface of the earth, holds three times as much water as all of the earth's oceans combined. Do you understand how much water that is? If you ever flown over the ocean for long periods of time, there's a lot of water down there. Three times, in fact, I think 75% of the earth is covered in water, something like that. Three times that amount of water underground. In other words, this discovery would quadruple the amount of water found on earth. After decades of theorizing and searching, scientists are reporting they finally found a massive reservoir of water in the earth's mantle, a reservoir so vast that it could fill the earth's oceans three times over. That's amazing. Now, if the Lord allowed that underground reservoir... To open up. And that water came pouring out from under the ground over the course of 40 days in combination with the rain that fell. That's well than more enough water to fill all the earth. There's plenty of water there to flood not only the earth, but as the scripture tells us, to cover even the highest mountaintops. So there's this sense here now that we've got a flood of biblical proportions. It's universal, it's global, it's covered all the world. And I want to kind of make this point to you as we kind of move through this. I want to make this point to you as we we think through this logically. If we're standing here in in Georgia, we're standing here in LaGrange, we're at about, I don't know, five or six hundred feet, seven hundred feet above sea level, something like that here. So if the water is covering all the earth to the tops of the highest mountains, we would say that in our location right here, there would be about five miles of water above us. Can you imagine? Think about the amount of water and the pressure and what that would do. Now keep that in mind and let's read now verse 17. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. There's this sense that for 40 days the water just kept on coming. It rained and the fountains of the deep poured forth and the water increased. So it lifted this ark above the earth. Remember, the ark's not designed to take a journey anywhere. There's no propulsion system. There's no guidance system. It's just designed to float. Verse 18, the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. So here's truth number three. The flood changed the entire landscape and the atmosphere of the earth. 
I think we misunderstand oftentimes exactly what the flood did to the earth. Now, I want to make a point, if I could, as we kind of think through this water, and we need to kind of wind this down this morning. Stay with me, though. I want to, I want to finish this up because I think these are important for you to understand. I'll never forget when Hurricane Katrina came through. And we wanted to partner with the church down there. We formed a partnership with, with the church down there in Gulfport. And so I went down with some guys from church. John Doman went and drove with us and some others rode down one day. And we had the opportunity to kind of ride past where they had sectioned everything off. Because we are going to be doing some work down there. They led us through all the way to the beach. Now if you had an opportunity to go to Gulfport and, and the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina, you saw incredible devastation. In fact, I'll never forget riding along the coast and seeing where all these houses had been. And instead of like piles of sticks like you would expect, like the, you know, the, the hurricane came through and destroyed the houses and it just kind of left a pile of debris, there was nothing there. There were literally concrete slabs wiped clean. It looked like a cleaning crew had come in, come in, knocked down the whole house, bulldozed it, put it in dumpsters, literally come with brooms and mops and cleaned it off and moved it away. Nothing. You say, how in the world could the, could the wind of the hurricane do that? It wasn't the wind that did most of the damage. That's what a lot of people don't understand about Katrina. It was the water. In fact, the storm surge at Katrina at its height was about 28 feet. This is about 16 feet high here. So another 12 feet above this. That amount of extra water came in off the ocean. A storm surge of 12 feet. And what it did is everything in its path was destroyed. And so it came inland. It destroyed all this stuff on the coast. And when it went back out, it sucked all that debris with it. Wiped it clean. Amazing. And so we saw this casino hotel down there. It was probably, it was probably 800 feet long. Massive it was one of these floating hotels, right? It kind of floated out in the bay a little bit. The, the, the storm surge had picked that thing up and lifted and carried it hundreds and hundreds of feet inland and just deposited it down. How was it able to do that? The water did that. So let's think, that's 28 feet of water. We know the damage it did. Imagine five miles of water. Now think about this. It's not just the pressure it put on the earth. It's not just what happened when the flood was here, but as the water recedes, it's got to go somewhere, right? So I believe if God opened up the fountains of the deep and allowed the water to come out, I believe when the flood was over, he opened them again and allowed the water to flood back in. So there was this period of time when all the water that had come and done all the destruction and wiped everything clean, which is exactly what the Lord said he wanted to do. I think there's a period of time when the water receded that all this water is pouring back out of the earth back down into these huge reservoirs under the ground. Now I want to tell you a story as I finish up this morning from 1980. Some of you remember 1980 very well. In 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted in Washington. Many of you probably remember when that happened. And when Mount St. Helens erupted, it blew out half of the mountain. And for all these miles, I don't even know what the, what the radius was around the mountain. It did destruction. Just the, the blast destroyed so many things. And the ash went thousands, tens of thousands of feet into the air. Trees were destroyed. Houses were destroyed. Lots and lots of devastation. But there's a lake at the base of that mountain called Spirit Lake. And you can do the research on your own if you want to. You should Google it. Spirit Lake actually flows out into a river and on down and miles off. When that eruption happened, because of all the ash and the debris, it kind of dammed up that lake and it couldn't flow down into that river like it normally did. And so for the next two years, that lake backed up. 
with mud and water and debris. And they say that it bagged up 20 miles. So there's 20 miles worth of water bagged up in this lake, in this dam that should have been flowing into this river the whole time. Two years later, March of 1982, this is two years later, a small eruption around the summit of Mount St. Helens caused all that water that was bagged up. It caused it, it began to shake and it basically destroyed that dam. It caused all of that water that had been bagged up for the last two years, 20 miles worth, to flow through that lake down into that river. You say, that's, that's an interesting deal. Why are you telling me that? Here, here's what it did. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. This is very important. In the course of 10 hours, not days, years, millennia, 10 hours... It cut a valley 140 feet deep in sheer rock. You should research it. Do the research yourself. How did that happen? The mass of water flowing over that rock in a very short, very rapid pace cut through that rock and there's a valley now there 140 feet deep that didn't exist before Mount St. Helens erupted. You say, why are you telling me that story? Imagine what five miles of water rapidly rushing off the earth would have done to the landscape. Imagine how the mountains would have changed. Imagine how the rivers would have been cut. Imagine, now think through me. I'm I'm, I'm about to blow your mind here just for a second. Think Grand Canyon. What we thought may have taken what we've been told millions of years, five miles worth of water rushing through that in a hurry could cut through some sheer rock in a massive amount of time. How do we know that? We've seen it happen. See, I think the point is we, we very much underestimate what the flood actually did to our planet. We underestimate the destruction, not only the spiritual destruction, how God wiped clean the sin, but how He wiped clean the physical parts of the world that had been created. He destroyed those and He kind of restarted everything. Now I want to finish for you by reading Psalm 36. And by the way, we're going to continue to talk through this. I think there's a lot to be said about fossils and the age of the earth related to the flood we're going to get to. But I want to read this morning Psalm 36 as we wind this down. It's a picture of creation. It's a reminder of creation. But it's also a reminder of God's power. I want you to listen to what it says. I have a message from God in my heart, the psalmist says, concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course. Then they do not reject what is wrong. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Now here's the flood analogy. You ready? Reaches to the heaven. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice is like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delight. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Here, here, I'm, I'm in, ending with this. This is the foundation of why we talk about the flood and why I think it's in Scripture. God is loving. God is compassionate. He's kind. He's patient. But He's also just. And there will come a time when he's seen enough, when we've separated ourselves far enough that he said, I've had it, I'm going to destroy the earth, I'm going to wipe away the sinfulness, and I'm going to start over. And I think we need to be warned as followers of Christ, if we don't repent of our sins and turn our lives to Christ, 
That's our fate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Sometimes, Lord, it's concerning for us and scary to think about your justice and your power. To understand this account of the flood is real. It did happen. There was great destruction, Father, and great turmoil on this earth. But, Father, I pray it would just remind us, first of all, of your power and your majesty. I pray it would remind us of your justice, Lord. But I also pray it would remind us of your grace, Father. You saved Noah because he was righteous. So, Father, I pray that we would see in this picture a, 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 a beautiful, glorious understanding of salvation through Christ, even in the sinfulness of the world, even in the destruction that surrounds us. If we put our hope and our faith in Christ, Lord, if we'll do that, then you will save us as well. Help us to understand the truth of this text. Help us to have, um, Lord, just a, a better grasp of what you did, a clearer picture. And, Father, I pray that we would with confidence believe this story is accurate. Lord, we would see your power and your love and your mercy and your justice in our lives. And I would use, Lord, I pray you would use this text to change our hearts, to change our minds, to live for you in all things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the chance for the next few minutes if you want to come and pray at the altar. Maybe you want to pray about something going on in your life, the life of a friend or family member. Maybe you want to repent of your sins and accept Christ. Or maybe you want to join the church. But this is your time now. You come as we sing. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.